it's not impossible to return to a situation where we have to be very careful to Mother Earth because it's fragile, but it still is there. And there is a way that it could come back if we all make an effort and if we all are conscious of that. Fishes are coming back in the middle of Venice. You know, you had animals in cities. Everything was saying, I am still alive, just help me. Welcome, everybody. I am Susie Menkes, editor of Vogue International at Condé Nast, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. He is known for his shoes, sexy shoes, easy shoes, even fetishistic footwear. But Christian Louboutin has a symbol that defines his invention, a scarlet sole. It's nearly 30 years since the designer made red his signature colour for his own brand. After formative years being dazzled by the showgirls at the Folie Bergère, then working for famous French shoe designer Charles Jordan, ultimately he became shoemaker to Hollywood stars, with Jennifer Lopez as just one of his many faithful followers. It all started in the museum that Christian walked past on his way to school, the Palais de la Porte Dorée in Paris. The current exhibition of his work has just reopened and is making visitors as fascinated by footwear as he is himself. On view are collections inspired by the pop art period, his sophisticated creations for the chic and famous, as well as a splendid cooperation with Indian fashion designer Sabia Sachi Mukherjee all put together by curator Olivier Gobert. This shoe expert, whose scarlet soul was inspired by his assistant painting her nails with polish, has further interests beyond his glam handbags, beauty perfumes and his super high heels. In 2013, he introduced a nudes collection of shoes, supporting inclusivity and diversity by emphasising the importance of embracing all skin tones in eight different shades from light to dark. Among other fascinations are a passion for gardening and a house in Portugal where his daughters can play and where he will soon open a discreetly glamorous hotel. As with the rest of his projects, you can be sure that Christian Louboutin will be putting his best shoe-covered foot forward. So Christian, um, I don't know whether you, anyone's told you that I've been doing this series of podcasts and it's been great fun for me and a, and a great success. Um, but the greatest success for me is getting hold of you because you know you're someone who I admire and I'm fascinated by what you do. So I want really just to start by going straight in with my first question. It was such a moment of joy and excitement for you and for all of us when we went into that exhilarating exhibition which opened with a big grand party in Paris Fashion Week in February at the um, Palais de Porte d'Orée on the edge of the city. 
Of course, since then, you've closed and now been opened again. But before we even talk about this stunning display of your Louboutin shoes over three decades, I'd like to go back to the very beginning and explain why that museum means so much to you. Well, because that museum was on the way uh, to go to school. So that I have known that museum since I'm a kid. Well, I'm a kid, yes. Because before being on the way to my school, to my college, so I would go from the age of 11 and a half every day, I would pass that museum. But before that, it was not on the way to my school, but it was on the way to the Bois de Vincennes, which is this place where every weekend, as we were living very, very close by, every weekend and sometimes during the, you know, during the summer, I would go in the afternoon, etc., as most kids of the 12 arrondissement. So it's, it was this really, you saw it, this really grand building with this grand facade. And as a kid, I was quite impressed by that facade and it scared me. So before being 12, 13, uh, I was quite scared by that, by that place. But it's one of my sister who once told me, older sister, you should go. You're going to love it. It's full of fishes. It's a, it's a big aquarium, etc. And as a kid from the 12 arrondissement, it was free for the kids of this neighborhood. So I ended up going there and discovering, first of all, all those fishes, beautiful fishes, which are underground. And, and then, little by little, I got more adventurous. I went to see upstairs. And upstairs, you had the collections of... Uh, of the ex-French colonies. So it became, it was at the time, the Museum of African Art and Oceanic Art. So you had a lot of things that I was completely excited to look at. And I had never traveled outside France as a kid. So my imagination was very much about, first thing, you know, this French-Belgium uh, comic called uh, Tintin, so, my, you know, I, I, I had the feeling to travel when I was reading Tintin. And it's exciting, you know, because if you think about it, Tintin is his young reporter, Tintin Emilou, his lovely dog. And, um, and they go, you know, Tintin en Amérique, uh, Tintin à Sydney, Tintin, c'est votre 714 pour Sydney. They go to China, they go to Egypt. They go to very, very different places. The only thing is that there has never been Tintin at the beach. What I mean by that is that Tintin is definitely a, a place where, where you, you see this character going in places with where you have archaeology, human people, I mean, humanity, archaeology, interesting places. So and that's why I say it's not about nature. It's definitely about civilization, cultures, culture shocks, etc. So my first traveling was really Tintin. And my second was that museum, which opened, this museum opened my eyes to different culture, different civilization through objects, through different things. And I just loved it. And it was also, it was a very natural way it happened to me. You know, it was on the way to go to the Bois de Vincennes, then on the way to go to school. And, um, and I didn't know anything about this culture. It's not that I had parents who told me, okay, you know, you have to know about Africa. You have to know about Les Îles Célez. You have to know about Indonesia. You have to know about Australia. You know, it was, so my discovery was my own discovery. 
and uh, and so even the words sometimes were really special for me in the sense of you know you have a country called Haute Volta so Haute Volta just the name for me was making me really drift and travel so it's really that's why this museum has been so important to me because it's the first gate to other things that my routine of a young boy born and raised in Paris. And then let's go forward from there to this amazing moment when you opened your show of 30 years of fantastic shoes and other accessories and you had this party with a litany of famous names. There was um, Monica Bellucci, there was Dita Fontese, there was Janelle Monae at the opening event. And it was really a glorious moment for you. Of course, slightly interrupted when COVID-19 shut down and closed the doors. But now it's open yeah. again. What do you think people are absorbing now? Maybe even small children, as you were, now from this big exhibition. What are people thinking about it? You know, the, the interesting thing is that there was this party. Then the exhibition started, was open for less than two weeks. And then it shut down. Uh, for COVID. And so the interesting thing is that uh, the exhibition was almost like Sleeping Beauty. You know, it, it had lived and then suddenly, like Sleeping Beauty, it got this COVID moment and put it to sleep. And I was thinking, me, myself being extracted to, uh, I was thinking of that place, really like Sleeping Beauty. You know, it's, a, it's this beautiful environment and everything is there frozen on time and waits to be kissed again by the audience. And um, so uh, so what is interesting is that I think that this COVID thing has been a shock for for everyone. And uh, But one thing also is that so many signals were, you know, were aligned in the same way. I'm thinking of nature, you know, that nature beginning of March since since the, you know, for three months, so the entire spring has been beautiful. Literally everywhere, spring has never been more beautiful. And because of that moment where everything was frozen, no, no plane, etc., you could actually admire, if you were not locked in a city, you could admire the power of nature and the importance of nature, but also the fact that nature took back uh, its rights and was saying, if you are careful with me, if you are careful with me, I'm ready to go back. And this is because there is a lot of damage which has been done. And now you could realize because of what happened that it's not impossible to return to a situation where we have to be, you know, very careful to Mother Earth and thankful to Mother Earth because it's fragile, but it still is there. And there is a way that it could come back if we all make an effort and if we all are conscious of that. But really the sign was there to say, hi, I can be beautiful. The sky is still blue. It's not gray. You know, fishes are coming back. In the middle of Venice, you had fishes. You know, you had animals in cities. Everything was saying, I am still alive. Just help me. And, uh, and it's interesting because for me, because of the exhibition and because of the state of mind that I had been put uh, 
you know, a, a form of non-retrospective, but something which aligns so much of your own work for literally three decades made, brought me back to a lot of things, but also I wanted with the exhibition to show uh, the importance of artists and artisans and the importance of the form of craftsmanship, which really is important to me and to my work. And all of this is in a way um, combined. to take you back to your beginnings, your, your working beginnings, because I can't imagine anything less natural, less um, like nature than your first job working on costumes for the Folie Bergère. That cabaret is the most extraordinary thing, and you were fascinated, I know, by dancers' feathers. So tell me about that period in your life. You were just 16, is that right? I was 17, and but I was already quite mature, and I thought... I had been out, I was like a nightclub kid since I'm 12 and a half. And uh, so, you know, five years when you are like a teenager looks like almost like a big life. So around being 17, uh, I thought, well, you know, I have to work. Life is great. Life is fun, but I have to work. I can't be, you know, I stopped school when I was 16, got expelled from free schools and just didn't want to go back to school when I was, uh, when I turned 16, which is, you know, the age where you can decide, okay, basta, and I will just go. So I thought I still have to do something out of my life. You know, I have to work. So I thought naturally to work for showgirls because I had drawn so many shoes thinking of showgirls. And I used to go to see their shows. I would go, I would see the second part because, you know, in Paris, you have an in, uh, intermission. At the end of first act, most people go outside to smoke a cigarette or just to smell the air. And then you go back, you know, the ring, ding, 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 and you go back to your seat. And I had realized with a very good friend of mine from school that you never get asked, you know, you never get asked your ticket at the second, uh, at the intermission. So we would sneak in and see shows, second part of every show, even plays, second part, because we would sneak in with no tickets. And so my favorite thing was to be on the second act of... The Folie Berger. So I knew it by heart. So I was really decided to do shoes for showgirls, for stage girls on stage. And so I learned so much. So I ended up showing drawings and they had the name of the showgirls of the period, you know, Norma Duval, etc. Anyway, so... Uh, so I started to work at the Folie Berger, but I was really the general assistant, meaning, you know, doing the coffee, the, the girls were giving me sequins and I had to sew sequins on a dress, on a thing, you know, add some further to different further, this type of thing. And I just loved it. But of course, my favorite thing was seeing girls doing the rehearsal, les répétitions. So they were going back and forth up doing the dances, the choreography, but also going down those stairs, those huge stairs. And, um, you know, we have this very famous, um, comment dit, uh, performer, singer, uh, called Miss Tinguette. And anybody who knows who is dead for years and years and years now, uh, probably 30 years or something even. Uh, and, but she was very famous for one thing too, 
from a sentence which says, L'ai-je bien descendu? Did I go down correctly? Sort of translation. And for some reason, I was always wondering why it was such an iconic sentence, going down the stairs, basically. And, but it is because one of the most difficult apprentices uh, uh, for a showgirl is to go down properly stairs, a staircase. Because those staircases are huge and they are sort of fake. The, the height of every step is not 17, but probably more around 28, 29. So almost double. So it's more complicated. They are much shorter. So, you know, and then you don't look at your feet. You smile, you open your, uh, you open your arms, and you look in front. You look at the audience, you look in front. So you have, no way where, you have no way to know where you put your feet. So it's, that's why it's such an important exercise for showgirls, because going down well the staircase means that you are really totally in control. So my favorite thing was really to see those girls talking of shoes, doing the correct shoes, putting their things in their shoes, but also dancing, performing, uh, rehearsing in their shoes. After all this extraordinary magic that you're talking about um, in these shows, in the Folie Bergère, but then you were a little more serious. You went to, um, you found a job with Charles Jordan, who was the shoe king of Paris in the 70s and 80s. Do you look at that period as well as something where you learned a lot 40 years ago? I did learn a lot with Charles Jourdan, where I did stay one year. And I was sent by the House of Dior at the time, by this lovely uh, fairy. She, I mean, I call her my, one of my fairies, called Madame Hélène de Mortemar, who was the director of Couture in Dior. And she sent me, Dior was doing the shoes at Charles Jourdan. So I had, I had shown my drawings to Madame de Mortemar, when I was 18, and she said, it's really beautiful. Would you like to do an internship at Charles Jordan where we are Dior, fabricating our shoes? And I said, yes, why not? And then she sent me there. So I was sent by Dior as an internship to that place. And it was really, uh, you know, when you are a designer, but it's only your hand and your drawing and your, your pen and your paper. When you arrive for the first time to do in three dimension your design it's really you know the most exciting and the most important thing that can ever happen to any type of designer so i was really 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 happy and also i have learned all the techniques so i can do the patronage the patterns etc i was there to learn the technique so i have learned all my technical and industrial background is coming from charles jordan so it was not such an easy experience because I was really like this type of flamboyant 18 years old boy. I wouldn't say she male or anything. That's a bit too modern, but quite extravagant. Let's put it that way. And uh, arriving at the heart of France in a, in a big factory in a small city. So I was really taken like the lousy, strange Parisian, which is not necessarily welcome outside Paris, I can tell you, especially at the end, uh, beginning of the 80s. But I was perfectly, I was on a mission. I needed to know how you do shoes. So nothing was stopping me. You know, every 
every uh, sarcasm, every insult, nothing was stopping me. I was like, okay, fine. I'm there to design shoes, to learn my job. Basta. They can say, they can think whatever they want. Doesn't affect me. And uh, so for one year, it was this type of battle in a difficult environment for me, for a kid of 18 years old, young, gay, Parisian, flamboyant, I would say. But, okay, you know what? It's fine. It was perfectly fine. I want to go from this point to what I know that everybody out there is waiting for. It's to know about those scarlet lacquered soles of your shoes. They're such a trademark of you. Christian Louboutin, you can't think of it without those uh, lacquered soles. And it goes back almost to when you founded your company in, in 1990. I think it was just after that. Tell me more about it. Tell me yeah. how it all started. I mean, the story that I have heard over the years is that your assistant inspired you by painting her nails bright red. And you thought, oh, well, that would be fun to put red linings. Is that true? It is not exactly this. It's, uh, I was in Italy in the factory and I had drawn, um, now you say a capsule collection, but I, I would say a part of the collection thinking of pop art, Andy Warhol, les serigraphies, the watercolors, etc. And uh, so all of my drawings were really bright, 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 in bright colors, in really pop, popping colors. And so uh, the girl we're talking of, who was in Italy with me, my assistant, was trying on some shoes. And then as she was finished to try on some shoes, she started to polish her nails with a nail polish. So, and... At the same time, I was looking at one of the prototype, which was really... And when I look at the prototype, I always have, you know, the drawing next to me. So, for instance, you see, I have a drawing that I just did now here. I would have... I don't have a shoe, but let's say this is the shoe. I would have the prototype. I would have the drawing. And I would look at the two and thinking, what is different? Why is it better on the drawing? Or that looks good. Anyway, so that's what happened. And... The drawing was, the shoe was nice, but the drawing was more powerful. And then I realized that in the drawing, when I was turning the shoe from the back, on, from the back so where I would see the heel forefront, uh, for, uh, the shoe turned into almost like a black shoe because there was a big black sole. And, and there was nothing dark in my drawings. It was really bright color. So I thought... I would like to see the same shoe, but without a black sole, with, uh, with something popping. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to borrow Anna, uh, her, her nail polish. So we had a bit of a fight because she was, had painted just two nails and she wanted to finish her, her, her hand. But I said, just one second, please let me do that. And then, so I took that nail polish and then I started to paint to erase the black. In fact, it was not really adding red. It was really erasing the black. But when I was finished, looking at that shoe with that red lacquered sword, I thought, that looks exactly, that has the strength of my drawing. That has really the excitement of my drawing, that respects uh, my drawing. So here I go. And then it became, uh, and then it became a sign of recognition of my brand. And then it became a trademark. But it was completely uh, out of trying something to really to be closer to my primary drawings. And because if you ask to designer, it's very important to feel very faithful to your first 
impactful drawings to your first drawings, you know, your, your first moments. And of course, it changed. It needs to be readapted to real life, to real body, to real ankles, to real feet or whatever. And, uh, but you want to be as close. I always try to be as close as I can from my primary drawings, which are really my, uh, my instinct or my dreamy drawings. So I just kept what looked more powerful uh, and then it became, it became the red soul. I love this piece of your history, but I want more. I want to go right back to the beginning. Uh, I think it's true that although you were brought up by two sisters, you once told me that you didn't really know much about high-heeled shoes until you went into a museum, maybe it's your museum there, and you were told that high heels were banned. So I don't really understand about your yeah. childhood. Your father was a cabinet maker. Do you think you learned your skills from him? Or was it more of a dream sequence after you were given a book? Um, you told me you were given a book by of Roger Vivier's drawings back in the 1950s. And was it all these things coming together or was there one specific moment of your childhood or late childhood that all this started? No, you know, I think that everything came together. Everything came together. There was a type of alignment and then suddenly it, it put me in that situation that, you know, there was... There was, to me, everything uh, concording to, to just design shoes. That was, going to, that was a passion and that was going to be an important thing for me. So I was not raised up by two sisters. I had three sisters and, and a mother, too. And uh, so basically, they were really like my mother was always on flat shoes. My sister were on like super wedge because it was the 70s. So they were like on those cork, you know, towery cork wedges, etc. But it was they were not really fully, fully passionate by, by fashion or by shoes even, so I could see it, but it was really not coming from my family. It came from a concours of circumstances, and you actually said it. Someone gave me a book of Roger Vivier, but before that, I had already drawn shoes. And it came from, the, from that museum again, the Musée of the African and Oceanic Art, where there is exhibition now. And so at the time, there was a, a, a drawing of a shoe, which was, uh, and the shoe, it was an outline sketch, and it was crossed in red, like forbidden. And it was forbidden, so it was a signalitic, you know, it was not a pretty drawing, it was just a signal to say it's forbidden to spiky heels. The reason is this museum, which, is, which was finished and opened in 1931, uh, the floors are all made of precious wood or mosaic. So this sketch was coming from the 50s where I think it's more... Roger Vivier, but I, you know, never, I don't, I never understood who got the paternity of the high heels stiletto, but whatever, the stiletto heels from the 50s had a metal part. The, the end of the, of the shoe, the end of the heel was a piece of metal, like a nail. So basically, every place where you would go, which was where the floor were precious, you would break the parquet, you would break the floor. So in some museum, it was forbidden. So, but me, I was looking at something which was a sketch. And that sketch made me understand that things start by a drawing and then can become a reality. So that sketch made, was telling to me, 
I am a shoe, but I don't exist because it was a 50s shoes and it was me. It was really the mid 70s. So I didn't know any type of shoes like that. But I understood that a lot, most things come from human's mind and then it comes, it can go through a sketch, through a voice, and then you transform it into a reality. So the combination of looking at that drawing and thinking, okay, you can draw a thing and it becomes a reality. The combination of that being a shoe and me loving showgirls, I just thought, okay, I have to keep on drawing like that drawing. And those drawings are related to girls in show on stage. So it's all those combinations plus someone giving me the book of Roger Vivier, which made me realize that it was actually a job and it could even be a beautiful job. Well, let me tell you what I think about your shoes. They are undeniably and absolutely sexy. They may even teeter towards fetishistic. What is your vision of the link between footwear and seduction? Alors, if we speak, if we touch that topic, I really need to separate men's footwear and women's footwear. So I would speak now of women's footwear. There is definitely a link with uh, shoes, women's shoes and desire, sexuality, and sometimes fetishism. And um, so there are many reasons for that. And we're talking now mostly of shoes with heels, even high heels. But a shoe is definitely an expression of the woman. And so if it goes to something which has to see with a bit of a form of sexuality, it, because it has this capacity to transform the body and to, to change the body language of every individual. And, and a woman who puts a pair of shoes on is going to be almost irradiated by uh, what she has on and it's going to transform her even her way of thinking and a lot of women I know are telling me that they start by putting a shoe on and then that's going to give the direction of what they're going to wear but it's according to their shoes so the shoes is also very much a representation of your mind of a mindset at a very specific moment but to go back to the to the direction of fetishism it's also because it changed your body. You know, when you go on, on a shoe which is high, it definitely changed the posture, you know. The, the chest is going in the front, you curve your body, so the back is going to be more curvy, and it, elong it elongates the legs. So there is something definitely harmonious, and which can, which can go all the way to sexy. Christian, there's yeah. so much in this Paris exhibition um, it endorses so much. Of course, it endorses shoes also that um, are not necessarily high-heeled. There's all sorts of things that you do. And there's amazing constructions in it as well. I, I wanted to ask you about the um, Indian fashion designer, Sachi Mukherjee, who I admire so much. And you've told me that you're fascinated by his architecture and his decoration. Isn't there something really that 
links the two of you. Even if you're not personally dipping the couture threads in gold as he is, there's still a real link in your styles. Yes, you know, I discovered the work of Savia Sachi before we actually started to work together because I'm doing the shoes for his shows in now in India. But um, I first went to India when I was 15 and a half years old. And so I've known India for 40 years at this point. And uh, so I've known the work of Sabia Sachi for a very, very long time. And I've been very impressed by how he's mixing the colors, but also definitely his attention to the smallest details and the, the, the love of smallest details, which brings him to the love of handicraft, artisanship, which is very important for me too. And um, so he really does his does it his own way, which is really spectacular. And um, and actually, we have a lot of things in common because I'm really very detail-oriented. And him being a, a fantastic, if not the best, you know, design, Indian designer, one definitely of the best Indian designer for sure, he really has, at the heart of his work, the love of fabrics, the love of color, the, a strong relationship with artisanship, embroideries, and but also humanity, humans, and you know he he has for years he didn't even have a house, but he had this atelier where he could even sleep, and the atelier is three hundred workers, and he would sleep with the workers. You know he really his family, his extension of his family goes to really the people he's working with. But in a way, which is quite unexpected, it's not like, you know, okay, I have my two, I have my entourage. It's really someone who lives with people who are working with him or for him. And, um, and I can, I am not like this, but I can definitely relate to, uh, to that uh, mentality, that behavior and that love for what you do. And uh, so he is really a great architect. And, and an interesting thing is that if you're not Indian, you would sort of maybe think, okay, you know, this is all Indian traditional. Not understanding that tradition started, you know, every tradition has started at one point and tradition have a starting point where they are becoming tradition. And so in a way, you would almost take for granted So for what he does was already existing if you don't have more than a curious eyes, you know, not so much of a curious eyes. But if you look in details, his work has made evaluate the silhouette of the Indian woman, and uh, uh, but but keeping a huge part of uh, of the tradition of his country and the great, the incredible craftsmanship of India. I must say that at your um, party, at the opening party, it was an amazing uh, vision. There was, we walked through the museum's tropical aquarium and there was Dita Vantis dancing seductively in nothing much more than a pair of your high heels. And the opening of the exhibition back in February was just a series of wonders to me. And I've seen many things in my fashion lifetime, but if a young person of 16, 17 years old, the age you were when you went to India, if that person comes and sees the show, what do you think he or she would take away from your show? I think that, you know, if you're 16 years old and you see that show, you think the sky is the limit. You know, this is a story of a young boy from, um, from a neighborhood, a working class neighborhood in Paris, 
whose parents never uh, never pushed him to design shoes, whose parents never made shoes. So it's totally uh, totally the story of a young boy who's been living his dream through his dreams. And uh, so if I can do it, if he could do it, I can do it. And I've been traveling a lot and sometimes to sign shoes, etc. And a lot of people are coming to me. So it's not only client, but what they see, they some, a lot of them see the designer, a lot of things see the man who is designing the red sole, the shoes, etc. But a lot of people I've been meeting wanted to speak to a person who for them is representing an idea of freedom, coming from nowhere, installing his dream in a reality. And so what I think it would say is that If I did it, anybody can do it. You just have to have the passion for what you do and the thrill, the excitement, and to, to believe in yourself. But you're also thinking about new things. And I must talk to you about your nudes collection. It embodies the whole idea of today of diversity in design. And it's not just a color. It's not just a nude color. It's a concept. You launched it in 2013 with five shades, and I think now you've gone up to eight shades. Yeah. And it comes in women's, and it also comes in men's as unisex styles. Plus, you've just okay. haven't you just opened, or has it closed down again with the pandemic? Um, a dedicated nude store on the um, Rue Jean-Jacques Rousseau in Paris. Yes, absolutely. The uh, Rue Jean-Jacques Rousseau will will have the first and the one and only store for me completely dedicated to the nudes. So as you were saying, the nudes is a concept, but before being a concept, it's a reality. You know, nudity uh, doesn't have uh, one color, has a, a spectrum of color, which comes from dark to very pale, or from very, you know, from very pale to, uh, to very dark. And uh, so in, the, in that spectrum, you have a lot of different shades. And uh, uh, I realized years back that, for instance, people love, but would say, I love nude shoes because it looks good on legs and it disappears. So nude was the idea of transparency. You put something which is transparent on your skin. So when you were showing nude shoes to buyers, you were showing a beige shoe. And it's someone called Shandy who actually one day pointed that at me and she told me, so this is 2011 or 2012, she said, I don't like what I'm hearing because you're showing shoes that you say they're nude, but they're not nude, they are beige, that's different. This is uh, nude is a color of skin. But nude, uh, this beige, is not the color of my skin. Shandy is black. And she says, so it shouldn't be called nude. It should be called beige. And I never thought about that, to be perfectly honest. And, and I looked at her and I say, I have to apologize because I never thought of what you say. And you're totally right. Nude is not a color. It's a huge spectrum of color. And if you say nude, it shouldn't be one color, but it should be all the representation of different uh, complexion, I think you say in English, of skin, skin complexions. And so from that moment, because I like the idea of nudity, but I thought, yes, nudity is interesting. That's what I, I, a thing that I love in my work. To, to You put something and it keeps on to keep you, in a way, 
naked. You know, you have shoes, but you still are naked. But it needs to be adapted to the skin complexion. So I say, okay, I'm going to do all the time in every season, I will have a, a selected uh, amount of shoes in the nudes. And so the nudes were coming first in five colors. Then it, and it was easy for me because they were having, um, there was Mathilde, there was Alpha, there was Safquat. They were all having names of people from my office because my office, we have so many different skin complexions. So Mathilde is very, 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 very pale. Alpha, being Nigerian, is very, 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 very brown, very, very, very dark. And Safquat, being Indian, is brown with red and red undertone. So all of this mixed started the first five colors. And then, you know, but then it's endless because everybody has almost a different skin tone. So, but I wanted to be as close as possible to uh, the general humanity, putting a pair of shoes saying, okay, my nude, meaning like a shoe which is going to disappear on the color of your skin. And it all just gives the height, your silhouette, but it, it, leaves, uh, it leaves a transparency on your foot. And it, it is important. I think it is important to, uh, to, to see it's... Not, well, now it's, it seems like it's an evolution and uh, I didn't do it as an evolution, but an, an, a necessity to be correct to what you say. If you say nude, it is not beige. And I, you know, I really have to thank Shandy to have opened my eyes on that. It is. It's very, it's very impressive what you've done and that no one seems to have followed you either. You're really alone on this and you should be proud to be ahead of the stream. I find it fascinating um, with you that we haven't yet talked about gardening. And yet I know that you take any chance you can to use your green fingers and you're really addicted to gardens. And how does that work? You've got your two little children. Are you teaching them the art of gardening and landscaping? Or is it just an escape route from your much more sophisticated work? Well, I love gardens. I love the combination of, of foliage, of flowers, etc. The colours involved, but also the texture involved. And uh, for, for instance, having been confined in a place where luckily there is a garden and there is a lagoon with my daughters and their mom, uh, basically it's, it's not difficult, but it's, it's specifically a pleasure to show to kids the beauty of nature, to show to kids, the, but also um, what is a garden versus nature. A garden is a human point of view on uh, on on nature and it's it's a small piece that one person may have taken and decided to transform so again it's it's an inspiration it's it, it's um it it comes from the man's mind and uh, from men's mind for you for the from the human kind's mind and i love uh, i think that there is nothing stronger that our brain and our thoughts and how if you are a creator, if you are a designer, you're expressing yourself, but it's really an illustration of what you have in your head. So, you know, a garden says 
uh, uh, has a lot of things to show you or to show to kids, for instance, but it also speaks of someone, you know. The French garden, this type of uh, regularity of the French garden has a mentality behind that. The English gardens has a different point of view on what it seems natural and jolly. So everything, everything really is a point of view which is described and shown in front of you. But what about Portugal? I mean, when we were in Portugal for the Condé Nast conference, um, you very um, gracefully opened your house and showed everybody and gave an intimate party. And um, it's an outstanding place and you've worked so hard on it. Is renovating a home perhaps a second passion after shoes? Well, probably it's a bit of a hidden passion, but I, yes, uh, I, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a frustrated decorator, but I really love objects. So it's always a pleasure to have a place where you can display objects, paintings, etc., tables, whatever, you know. And uh, so I thank God uh, I don't feel frustrated because I have a house, I have few places where I can display objects, etc. But it's, uh, it's, it's true. It's a bit of a second nature. I love to, uh, I love just like this museum, you know, I love to see objects in a place which tells you a story. So, so thank God, you know, my, my, my work is really full, full, fulfilling my, my enthusiasm for, for the world and for everything. But definitely, uh, definitely after shoes, architecture and object is a thing that I love, which would come very, very, very quickly. Uh, Christian, I can't have this whole conversation with you and fail to mention just one small thing in your work, and that is the dozens and dozens of celebrities who um, wear your inventions. I mean, Jennifer Lopez is just one that comes immediately to mind. How do you feel about celebrities? They've so dominated our fashion world for such a long time. Well, I think that, you know, you can only be happy if, uh, a so, uh, you know, celebrities, those big celebrities are wearing what you do. Because basically, if you are a celebrity, you have access to everything. So at the end, choosing someone, choosing the work of someone, especially, you know, I'm, I'm just one person. So it's not like a, a machine behind me. So it's not like a war machine behind me to, you know, to to give things to people. So to be chosen by people who have access to everything and who could choose anything from anyone is definitely a, a pleasure. And also I like, I do a very small things. I'm just doing, you know, leather goods, I'm doing shoes, I'm doing bags, I'm, do, I'm, I'm, I'm touching beauty. So very, very cosmetic things for an entire silhouette in a way. So I like to see how people take what you do and appropriate it to themselves, to their own personality. Sometimes you think, oh my God, what is she doing? And, but, uh, and I even like that. You know, I like to think this looks so crazy. I like it so, you know, I like it the way I say this looks so bad or this looks so great. You know, as long as you like something, you endorse it with your own integrity, you adapt it to what who you are, this is a pleasure for me seeing that. Do you 
ever dream of dressing people from head to feet? Will you ever do clothing when you, now you've done so many things? No, no. Because um, for a very simple reason is that it, it makes part of the fashion industry, which in a way I think I know quite well. And it wouldn't be surprising for me to keep on, you know, if I had to do something so substantial of doing clothes, it means that it's a huge energy which would go in that. If I had to spend a huge amount of energy in something else like what I'm doing now, I wouldn't do it in the fashion industry because I wouldn't be too, you know, I would not be so surprised. It's more or less the same actors in a way that I would end up meeting. I would, you know, to, to re, if I had to start a big adventure, to add a big adventure, I would not do it in, I would not do it in the same field. I would not do it in fashion industry. Aha, is there something else planning then inside your head? No. I'm just opening a tiny little hotel there, so I have this in mind right now. <laughs> You're opening, I, I missed that. You're opening what downstairs? A small hotel. Oh. In Portugal. Well. It comes back to my shoes in a way, because designing, you know, the details of a window, suddenly there is this yosh, which is this pinky, uh, pinky neutral marble coming straight from Portugal. So this pink is in the collection of the next collection of shoes because it's actually a very, very, it's, uh, it's less stiff than a marble. So, you know, when you design something, it goes back to me, it goes back to my, you know, my first love, which is shoes. So anything which is creative in a way is bringing you more creativity. You know, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like running. It's like if you run, your heart gets more oxygen. So creating something else that what I'm doing goes back to giving me more oxygen to what I'm doing in general. And has this hotel idea come while you've been in lockdown or has it been with you for a long time? Were you in the middle of a collection? It's been there for a while. It's been there for a while. And it's, it's really a bit, uh, it's a bit Marie Antoinette. It's where, uh, where I'm having my house by the seaside. There was uh, an my house is, I can host people, let's say six people. I have three bedrooms, so I can host, you know, maximum six people. So I thought it would be nice to have a place where if some people come, at least they can stay somewhere. And, and, and then there is no restaurants by the seaside where I, I'm staying. So I thought first at the beginning, I just thought to do like a little restaurant. And then I got that place to do a restaurant. And then the mayor of the village came to me and said, but you know, this is a big, this is a vast, uh, this is a vast piece of land that you've been getting. You could even do a hotel. So it started by a joke. And I thought, okay, you know what? It's nice actually to have a hotel. You are Wonder Man. You know, <laughs> I remember in 2018 at the Condé Nast conference in Lisbon, you said these words, you said, there is a showgirl in every woman. Does that apply to men as well? And are you a showman? You know, I think that I'm more a showgirl than a showman. But I think that there is a showgirl in every man and there is a showman in probably every man too. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I said it as a joke, but yes, I probably have a showman side. That definitely makes part of my personality. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've already told me that during this current lockdown, it's the um, 
pool slides that went through the roof in the sales and that um, people aren't wearing high heels. But do you think that the high heels will come back as the pandemic slows down? I th- yeah, I think so. I think, you know, now there is a variety of height and uh, in heels, for instance, which come from, you know, from medium heel to high to very high and goes, you know, it's waves. And But I think that, you know, the fantastic thing of being a woman, for instance, and uh, and having the, uh, the freedom is that you can go, you can go the way you want. You can go from here to flat, etc. You don't necessarily need to follow a rule. I only like high heels or I only like flat. I'm dedicated to that. I'm dedicated to the, you know, fashion is there also to be flirtatious but also to be infidel. You can be unfaithful to fashion. I think it's fine. It's better, you know, there are so many uh, things where you have to, you should be faithful. Fashion is not one of them. So play with it and be unfaithful the way you enjoy your fashion. Christian Louboutin, what a way to end. Thank you so much for talking to us and telling us so much more than we know about shoes. Uh, Thank you, Susie, and thank you for being always there because I've known you for such a long time and you've always been curious, happy, and dedicated to your work and to many other things, but you are dedicated to people who are, that you you look at and you've always been like that. So you are a very, very important, inspirational character and I absolutely love you. Thank you so much and I absolutely love shoes. <laughs> Thank you for them. Louboutin, your lasting enthusiasm for shoes has created a powerful heritage. Your dedication brings your story to life, from your childhood dreams to dedicated designs that are as desirable as they are foot-fitting. How great that the exhibition is open in Paris after the lockdown. Your own words are so evocative that you have taken us from high heels to sports shoes in a heartbeat. Your ability to bring your designs to life made a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to see your hotel open by the beach in Portugal, but I may have to swap my footwear from stilettos to sandals. Join me next time when I shall be talking to Rosita and Margarita Missoni to hear about their grandmother and granddaughter relationship within their Italian family's zigzag knitwear business. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. If you would like to find my articles, visit the fashion channel of vogue.co.uk and at Susie Menkes Vogue on Instagram. If you have enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, YouTube, and many others.